Amen. Glad you're with us today. Last week we started our series in the Minor Prophets. Today we're going to look at our first of the Minor Prophets, which chronologically speaking, most people agree, that is most likely Jonah that was written earliest. So find Jonah in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to be there in a minute. But first, I want to get something out of the way. You might have heard of this. Uh, Let me introduce you to someone. This gentleman is Michael Packard. Michael is a 56-year-old lobster diver, and earlier this year, on June 4th of this year, actually, he was diving for lobster, scuba diving, off the coast of Cape Cod, when suddenly he felt a big push from behind. And it took him a while to realize what was happening, and like everything went black in that moment, and he finally pieced it together. He thought, well, am I dead? What is happening? He was in the mouth of a humpback whale. In the mouth of a humpback whale. Now, I don't say he was swallowed by the whale because, like, apparently whales, filter feeders, they don't swallow things that large. Uh, so he wasn't swallowed by a whale. He just is in the mouth, and he starts, like, struggling, and the whale didn't like that. And so the whale starts to surface and shake his head back and forth and spits Michael out, and he survived. That's him actually in the hospital after the event happened, right? If someone tells you, hey, I was eaten by a whale. You remember that conversation for the rest of your life, right? Like from now on, everyone who describes Michael, they're not going to be like, oh, you know Michael? Michael is about this tall, brown hair, big smile. No, they're going to say Michael, the dude who got eaten by a whale. That's who he is. He is a whale guy. Now, incidentally, my favorite part of the story, or not my favorite part, I just love this. Ten years prior to this, he walked away from a plane crash in Costa Rica, which is also a pretty good story, right? And I like to picture Michael in his own quiet time devotion, praying and just like, God, I am so tired of telling that story about the stupid plane crash. Could you just do something so that I don't have to tell that story ever again? God's like, I got a plan, right? Because now he is the whale guy. And it's only been a few months, so I figure Michael is still like, hey, can I, did I tell you about the whale thing? And people are like, yeah, you told us, Michael. Tell us again. Um, like, he's probably still enjoying it. But years from now, don't you think at some point Michael's going to be like, listen, I have feelings. I have ideas and opinions. I'm not just the whale guy. And everyone in his life is going to be like, shut up, Michael. Tell us about the whale. Am I the only one who's so excited about this? Come on. He was eaten by a whale. Okay, so here's why I'm bringing this up. You're probably ahead of me mentally. We're going to talk about Jonah. If you are not aware, in the middle of the book of Jonah, Jonah is going to be eaten by a great fish, right? This is probably the one thing that we all know about Jonah, is he gets eaten by the great fish. I think we've done to Jonah what everyone is about to do to poor Michael here. We have turned him into the fish guy. Like, that's all we know about him. When in fact, as a prophet, and certainly as a book, there is so much more important stuff happening in this book than just the fish thing. I would say it this way. The story of Jonah is not a story of ichthyology. It is a story of theology. Thank you. I was so proud of myself. Take a picture of that. Yeah. The story of Jonah is not a story of ichthyology. It's the story of theology. 
It's going to be a long three weeks, people. Come on. Um, so let's uh, dive into the book of Jonah. <laughs> With an open mind and heart, let's not reduce this to a story about a fish, because that is like weird and interesting, and we're going to talk about that, but that is not primarily what the story is about. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. I promise, no more puns the rest of the morning. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So remember, this fall, we're looking at the prophets that were written during what is called the Assyrian period, where Assyria was the superpower of the world. This is about 930 to 680 BCE. This is Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. Uh, Jonah is mentioned over in 2 Kings chapter 14. So we know he actually existed, and he actually was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. This was a period of time that was really good for the northern kingdom. Assyria was struggling. Uh, there were some things going on. They were struggling to get their act together, and the northern kingdom kind of took advantage and expanded their borders a little bit and solidified the borders around Israel. Um, so things were going well. Now, that didn't last real long because about 40 to 50 years after Jonah prophesies, Assyria, newly resurgent Assyria, comes back and wipes out the northern kingdom. 722, they destroy Samaria, and that's kind of the end of the northern kingdom. So Jonah is a book written in that time period, and it's a book that's really steeped in irony and satire. That's a real central theme of this book. It's literature that's designed to call out absurd thinking by using equally absurd imagery and stories. Uh, Jonah, his name means dove. The dove is the symbol of Israel. So Jonah, really what we're going to see in him is he embodies all the weaknesses of the people of God. He is like this caricature of what God was up against. And the story really is a story that is designed to rebuke an entire nation about their attitude towards outsiders. And so the first irony of this book is that Jonah isn't even sent to the people of God. He's a prophet of the people of God, but that's not where God sends him. He sends him to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Nineveh um, it was founded way back in Genesis 10 by a man named Nimrod. I just like saying his name. Uh, the city is about 1,800 acres, so it was a really large city, and we've discovered the ruins. If you know where modern-day Iraq is, it's just east of the Tigris River. Mosul is just west of the Tigris River, so that's where it's located. The Assyrians are these violent people. They're awful. They're, they were like the major threat to Israel. Uh, so really... The best possible thing that could have happened for Israel in the reign of Jeroboam II was that God would have destroyed Nineveh. That's what they all were rooting for, honestly. So in every way, it would have helped Israel's economy, it would have helped their security, it would have just helped everything about them. And had God done that, probably the northern kingdom would not have been destroyed in 722, which is why it was probably a pretty big shock when God pulls Jonah aside and says, hey... I want you to deliver a message for me to the Ninevites. That's why this happened. Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the, from the Lord. 
So Joppa is the main port in the northern kingdom. Probably what Jonah is thinking is, listen, if I go and just leave, God will find someone else, or maybe he'll just give up on this stupid idea. Verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The idea there is utter exhaustion, like almost like Jonah passes out. Verse 6, then the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So one thing we have to know, we are like transporting with all the prophets back into the ancient world, like right, not just into like Jesus' time, but in the ancient world. The ancient world was incredibly pluralistic spiritually. Every ethnic group had their own gods and everyone kind of just assumed that all the gods existed. There are only two ancient religions that emerged from this time that really become monotheistic. One is Judaism and uh, the other one is Zoroastrianism, which doesn't come along for a few hundred more years here. Judaism at this point, it wasn't so much that we're monotheistic, there's only one God. It was kind of more like our God is the God of all gods, and so there probably was a lot of fuzziness on this theological point that there is only one God. Um, I say that just so that we can recognize this. In the ancient world, everything was assumed to have spiritual causes. We are on the other end of the spectrum of that in our world. So in the ancient world, something bad happens, and they just assume there is a God somehow doing something, and we got to figure that out. In our world, if something bad happens, like we never assume there are spiritual causes. Or if something good happens, like, like hypothetically, I'm not going to do it, but let's say I was standing here, just started levitating 10 feet above the stage. Like every one of you would have the same thought. You'd be like, oh, that's a pretty cool trick, Jonathan. I wonder how he does it. None of you would think he's a witch, right? Like none of us would think that, or he's an angel. Like we wouldn't attribute it to spiritual causes, even though it's something that is like outlandish and we couldn't explain, we would all in our minds say there must be a rational reason that this thing is happening. In the ancient world, they had the opposite bias, okay? So they see a great storm, they're like, well, there must be a God behind this. In this case, they were right. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. So they ask him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Notice all of these are kind of more ethnically driven questions. They're not meteorological in nature, right? That, so they're assuming they're, this is something that has to do with forces we don't understand. Verse 9, he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Well, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So how much did Jonah not want to fulfill this prophetic mission that God had given him? So much that he would rather die than do this mission. Like, I think this is a viable option, but he did not say, we got to go back to Joppa. 
you got to drop me off. I have something that I have to go do. And God, if I do it, God will relent. No, he says, drown me. Just kill me. And then I won't have to do this horrible thing. And you guys will be fine. Verse 13, remember irony. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The irony in this story is this. Here are these pagan sailors who risk their life to save the life of this stranger who they've never met. They, they, try, they genuinely risk their life because they don't want to kill this man. They want to preserve his life as best they can, even though they know he is the cause of it. Meanwhile, the prophet of Israel, who, who knows God, is running and avoiding what God has asked him to do. This is a stunning rebuke to the people of God that these pagans got it right while the prophet of Israel got it wrong. And I think the question that we have to ask to really unlock this book is why is that? What was it that the people of God were missing? That is what this book is about. It's not actually about a fish. But we should talk about the fish. Verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here's the thing that we have to talk about. So the, the clear symbolic nature of the story, and there's a lot of other symbolism in here uh, that we'll talk about in a sec, but uh, the clear symbolic nation of the, nature of the story combined with the fish thing have led some people to believe that this is an allegorical morality play. It's not a true story in the traditional sense, but it's a true allegory, meaning that everything represents something else. And that's the question we kind of have to wrestle with. Is this true or is it an allegory? Well, there's some evidence to consider here. There is evidence that Jonah existed. And outside of the fish thing, I think the rest of the story is fairly plausible. God would do stuff like this where he would use a prophet to teach the people of Israel a lesson. So really the main thing that we have to wrestle with is the fish thing. When it comes to the fish thing, I think we have three interpretive options. I'm not going to tell them to you today because I don't want us to get bogged down there, but there's three options when we read this text in Scripture. I, uh, we posted a bonus content video. It's online now wherever you watch Pulpit Rock sermons or listen to them or podcasts or whatever, um, where, where I kind of walk through the three options. I'm not going to talk about them today. What I want to do is talk about the bigger question that we have to consider. Is it true or is it allegorical? At Pulpit Rock, we are passionate about telling the truth about Scripture and framing it in ways that are accurate. Um, so it is inaccurate to assume that everything in the Bible was written as a fact-checked, investigative, journalistic research article. It's just inaccurate. That's not how all the Bible was written. In other words, we have to acknowledge that sometimes... The writers of Scripture are attempting to do other things. And sometimes we have to acknowledge we don't even know what they're attempting to do. And we're not totally clear. So to insist that the Bible is always 100% literal is a reach. The Bible is always 100% true, but true and literal are not the same thing. 
The Bible also, incidentally, is incredibly historically accurate, like stunningly so. It's been assaulted by critics for years, and it has stood up to the assault in ways that no ancient literature ever has. But just because the Bible is historically accurate does not mean that we are always privy to what the authors are trying to do. And to be honest, there are some parts of the Bible, and I think this is one of them, where we're just not sure what the intent is. There are parts we don't know if we should take it literal or in some other way. Let me give you another example that we probably could all agree on. The first chapter of Job, Job chapter 1, it is written as a historical narrative. I don't know if you are aware of where it takes place. It takes place in the throne room of God. It's a conversation between God and Satan. Now, we would all assume that there was not like a human court reporter up there, like writing, and then God said, and then what are you going to say? You know, and do they still use those? Is that a thing? Anyway, um, so we would assume no one is like taking dictation of the scene. So we look at that and we would not take to that text, even though it's in the same form of literature, the same validity questions that we would bring to like, say, the Gospel of Luke, which is a historical account that has to be accurate based on what we believe. Um, now, as I say that, I, some of you may already know this, but I, I will disclose, like there are some... Bible scholars and theologians who would be very angry at me for saying that. They might get up and walk out, call me a heretic. There are, like, there are theologians who will die on the hill of a literal interpretation to every single scripture. Uh, some of them also will kill on that hill. Um, but if you, like me, believe in the validity of scripture believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, believe in the authority of Scripture, then we have to be cautious of making Scripture something that it's not. So the question is not what do I think or what do Bible scholars think. The question really fundamentally is what does Scripture compel us to believe? What does Scripture say about itself? And here in Jonah, the Bible does not command us to interpret it all literally. It's just not in there. And we disrespect the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture when we act like Scripture is concrete, when in fact the Holy Spirit of God has injected mystery into the text. Right? So we just have to allow it to be mysterious when God chooses it to be mysterious. So all that, my point is just this. It is not unbiblical for some people to say that Jonah is an allegory. Um, the truth is nobody knows for sure but no one is throwing out their Bible for suggesting that. The Bible can handle those sorts of questions. God can handle those sorts of questions. You're not doing anything wrong if you have questions about the text. A lot of people have had questions about the text. If you watch the bonus content, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But let me tell you what I think. This is just my opinion. Uh, feel free to disagree with me. Like, I think it's a good discipline for you to go to a church where sometimes you don't agree with the pastor. So you can disagree with me on this. This is my opinion. I think it might be true. And there's some historical reasons that I think it's a true story. Uh, independent of the whole fish thing, there's a couple of things that happen in history that I talk about in the bonus content that, that kind of convinced me. I think God did a miracle here. God sent something to preserve Jonah's life. Jonah described it as a fish. Was it a fish? Was it a whale? Was it option C? I don't know. Um, I don't think Jonah was a marine biologist, so I think he's just taking a stab at it, using his best guess. I think it was a miracle, but here's what I want you to hear. Me thinking that does not mean it's the only rational biblical option, and we've got to get over that thing in our Christian churches that it, where we, everyone has to think just like me or get out, 
right? It's not the only rational biblical option. It's just my perspective as one theologian who studies the scriptures. You all also are a theologian, and you should study the scriptures and form your own opinion. The most important thing is this. Regardless of where we land on that whole debate about literal, true, or allegorical, we should have missed the point of the story. We should have missed the truth that God is desperately trying to teach his people. And that truth is not tied to the fish. That truth is tied to the question, why did Jonah run? That's what the story is really about. Why did he run from what God wanted? He tells us, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, you can flip over there if you want. He's answering a question from God, and he, and he is basically saying, this is, this is what I feared would happen. He's disclosing, this is the reason that I didn't want to do this thing in the first place. And his disclosure is so fascinating. What he feared was this. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I just knew that was like you. That's why I ran. What Jonah thinks is that God is making a dangerous move by being willing to forgive the Ninevites. Like, Jonah looks at that, and to him, this is an offensive mercy. The mercy of God is offending him. Jonah is a staunch religious believer. He's highly patriotic. He values justice. Nineveh is immoral. They're racially different. They're religiously different. They were unjust and violent. And I don't mean like they would get in fistfights. Like they did horrific things if you read history. And for Jonah, it is just too much to think that the same love and grace and mercy that he enjoyed would be applied equally to those people. Jonah wants a God of his own making, not a merciful God but a God who punishes the bad and rewards the good. Jonah wants karma. That's what he's after. Jonah didn't want the real God. There's a lot of layers to this story. It's intended to push us a little bit, right? That's why it was written. Um, It's challenging in terms of what it means about uh, us being the people of God. We're going to talk about it for the next two Sundays. Uh, There's exciting stuff there. Today, I just want to focus in on two questions that I think will unlock the book for us. Why is God so concerned about Nineveh? They're horrible. Why is he so concerned about them? And the other question is this. Why is God so concerned about Jonah? He also is horrible. (laughs) Why does God chase him to the ends of the earth? What does this teach us about the character and the nature of God? Let me suggest a few things. I think it teaches us this. God is not our personal God. He's not. God is also not our national God. This is teaching us, this thing that Jonah didn't want to believe is true. God is the God of the whole world. He takes responsibility for all of it, right? And he cares about all of it. He's not committed to our personal good. He's also not committed to our national good. He is committed to the good of the whole world. That is his first commitment. Jonah could not accept that. He didn't like that about God. That's why he ran. But when he ran, he discovered this other aspect of God's nature. This God who is committed to the good of the whole world and focused on the good of the whole world also 
cared personally for Jonah. Like he cared about him. He, he was not indifferent to him. He loved Jonah. He protects Jonah. He leads Jonah. He wants Jonah to experience goodness and joy. But God was in no way motivated by what Jonah wanted, by his personal preferences and biases. In fact, God loved Jonah, but he was motivated by his plan to redeem the whole world. He was motivated by God's personal preferences and biases. And what God was trying to do was to get Jonah involved in his thing. It wasn't going to flow the other way, where Jonah kind of tugs God into Jonah's thing. I think here's what it means for you and I, and this is hard, but I think we got to see it. God loves you deeply. Like, he really does. He loves you deeply, but he is not motivated by what you want. That is not his motive. We have to accept that. God cares about your heart. He really cares about what your heart and what you're going through. But his work, what he's doing on earth, is about redeeming the whole world. And if we aren't careful, we will be stuck like Jonah was and like this power struggle with God where we're constantly trying to get him to care about the things that we care about. And he resists that, not because he's obstinate, but he's like, no, I, I have things I care about. I want you to get involved in those. That's how this thing flows, like he was trying to do with Jonah. And the reason he does that is, is because he knows this, that we will never find the joy and the happiness that we long for in life outside of his redemptive work. Even if we could drag him into all of our ideas, we wouldn't be happy. Most of us would still be miserable and we'd come up with new ideas to drag him into. Joy is found in working with him, not getting God to work for you. And that's what Jonah was missing, as hard as it was for him to accept. He needed to set aside his agenda and join God's. It's challenging, right? I'm challenged by it. Um, I was trying to think of how to apply this, and I, I, I came up with three things. I want to try to apply it politically, familially, like to our families, um, and then I want to just apply it like personally in our hearts, if that's okay. Uh, remember, the prophets, it's going to be a long year, because the prophets, like they push us around, right? Like they're challengers, and they're challenging us about something, and this story is intended to do that. And so in these three areas, I think we need to be challenged in the following ways. So first, politically. I'm going to say something political. Um, it always makes me a little nervous to do that. Like this feels like the wrong time to ever say something political. Uh, the great preacher, Dr. Derwin Gray, he said this. He said, people will leave a church over politics before they'll leave politics for the church. Oh, feels true sometimes, right? But we don't have to be like that, right? You can disagree with me if I say something politically you don't like it. We don't have to see everything eye to eye. I, I, I think what I'm going to say is a fair reading of the story, I'm just asking you to consider it, as a political application of this text. Here it is. We have to be very careful about nationalism. We have to be very, very careful as God's people about nationalism. Like this idea that the U.S. should look after its own interests and not try to help the rest of the world, that is a really unbiblical concept. Do you see how I got that from this text? 
Just think about this. Uh, think about Jonah. Israel is actually God's chosen nation. Like he's like, you're my chosen nation. You're the one nation that I choose, Israel. And God didn't let Jonah get away with his Israel first nationalism. America, we are not God's chosen nation. We're just another nation. I think we're a pretty good one. Uh, but we're not God's chosen nation. And so uh, God is going to challenge us as his people to constantly think beyond these borders because he's the God of the whole world. God is not a national God. So Christian nationalism, just it shouldn't be a thing. There could be nationalism, but that it be Christian, that should not be a thing. We can be patriotic. We can love this country deeply and not sin in the way that Jonah is sinning. This is sin, his unwillingness to help a neighboring nation. God wants his people to care about the whole world. Um, maybe, uh, maybe just a couple more thoughts on this, and then I'll move on. I'm sure you saw this a couple of weeks ago when, like, the pictures of Afghan families handing their children over the wall of the Kabul airport to U.S. soldiers. Um, I mean, if, if you have, can you imagine? And I hope it's not lost on you that there is a reason that stuff like that happens, right? That says something about the nature of this world. And I think what it says is there are a lot of people in this world who are desperate for the sort of freedoms that you and I were born into, right? And, and there's something unique, and I'm not saying that our country is perfect because it's got all sorts of issues and all sorts of inequality that we need to fix and all that sort of stuff, but there is a reality of our country that we have something extraordinary compared to, I'll just say, a lot of people in the world. And it's worth protecting, it is worth appreciating, it is not worth hoarding right? God's people uh, should not be of that mindset. Uh, America has done so much good in the world. I think as God's people, to the degree that we have political influence, we should encourage that. Let's keep doing good in the world. That should be something that should be a part of our political discussion. We should be advocates for helping other nations, not uh, advocates for backing away and becoming selfish and protective in our approach to the rest of the world. That was actually Jonah's political philosophy, is back away and become selfish and protective in, in, towards the rest of the world. And it was sinful. I know why that philosophy is out there. I just want to say this. I think it's a fair reading of the text. Is the people of God. That one's not for us. Um, God's constantly stretching us outside of our borders. Now, we try to do this actually at Pulpit Rock. One of the things that we track year after year financially is just how much of the money that comes in through donations uh, goes outside of these walls. Now, we track that not because I don't like what's happening inside these walls. Amazing things are happening inside these walls every week. Like, just incredible ministry is happening. But because we have a God who is the God of the whole world, not just the God of his people, like we do want to have investment outside. Incidentally, we just closed the budget year in June. Um, in this last year, 30%, 30 cents of every dollar um, went outside of these walls. And it, I, like I'm excited about that. I feel like that speaks to your generosity as people. I feel like it also speaks to the theological premise that God is not just our God, but he is the God of every human on earth, whether they know it or not. 
And so we need to be involved stretching ourselves beyond our little thing. That brings me to the issue of family. Let's just think about this for a second. Um, I think this is equally challenging, maybe more challenging than what I said politically. Uh, God's given you a family. He may have given you a marriage. He may have given you friends. I think God really wants you to enjoy those things. He's given them to you because you need them. He knows that you need relationships. Uh, They are for your benefit. But when we really get the story of Jonah, I think we will conclude this. Even our family and marriage and relationships exist for the purposes of God, not the other way around. It's challenging. You know, think about this lens. You think about it politically because historically it was kind of a political story. But you can think about it in terms of familial stuff. Israel is the family of God. And really what God is trying to do is, is he's like, hey, could you all care about the family down the street? You know, the one with like eight cars in the driveway and no grass, just dirt. And they're always throwing wild parties. I mean, that was Nineveh. And God's like, listen, you are my family, but could you care about the family down the street? Most of us, we're not in charge of a nation. Um, We have some political influence, but the direct area of influence that we have uh, capacity for or been entrusted with is our family. The way that God runs his family is it is constantly expanding, right? That is the nature of his family. There's never a moment where God's like, that's it, lock the door, build a fence, everybody quiet, just It's just us, right? No, he is constantly expanding his family. And I think he would love it if we would love, if we would run our families and our relationships in that same way. There's a really powerful biblical word for this. The word is hospitality. Hospitality is the concept that your family is never a closed unit, that it's always expanding, that it's always open for somebody else. I think that's what God was trying to do with Israel, and I think he would love it if we viewed our closest relationships in that same way. They exist for the purposes of God. Now, last thing, last application. Let's just apply this personally, um, just to you and I. As a person, I think we need to stop asking God to get involved in our good ideas and instead find his ideas and join him. Like, that's what Jonah didn't understand, right? Like, you will not find joy and peace and love and goodness, all that stuff that we're after in life. You will not find it by trying to get God to bless your thing. You will find it by joining the things that God's already blessed. Jonah missed that. And there's so many times when we miss it too, when we're metaphorically in Joppa, looking for a boat, looking for a way to get out of there because we don't want to join that thing. But listen, life is not in Joppa. Life is in Nineveh, no matter how scary it may seem. Life is in the agenda of God. You know, I, I love this about the story. I love that we have a God and we certainly have a Savior in Jesus who even when we run, chases us down. This would be a very short story if that was not the nature of our God. Because Jonah would run and it's over. It's over in the middle of chapter one. Uh, But we have a God who sends storms, who sends fish, who is persistent, who is after us. 
Wherever you find yourself today, and I know many of us, uh, we might be frustrated in life or we might be uh, frustrated with God because he's not doing the thing that we want him to do. So was Jonah. And he may not be embracing all of your preferences or all of your biases or all of the ideas that you want, but he is really trying to get you involved in his and he is chasing you down with that goal in mind because he wants for you the best possible life. And I think what's so hard about this book or what's so challenging to me about it is it forces you to pause and consider that maybe we are as misguided as Jonah was in thinking we know what's best for us. Maybe God's agenda that he's mercifully trying to drag us into, maybe that actually is our best. Maybe what he wants uh, is because he knows us better than we know ourselves. Let me just ask this as I close today. Do you feel that tug? Do you feel that God just kind of pulling you towards his thing? That's where joy is found. Do you feel that just kind of, he's just not leaving you alone? He's just kind of messing with you to try to get you to see that thing that he's doing that he really has already blessed and he just wants to drag you into it so that you can experience it with him. That's what this story is about. It's not a fish story. It's a story about the struggle between us and God of whose agenda is best. Let me pray over us. God, we intellectually at least acknowledge your agenda is best. God, it's hard got a lot of stuff, a lot of ideas. We see things from our perspective so strongly, but we just, we just pause and we just say, yes, God, your agenda is right. We want to be convinced. We want to be turned from our thing to your thing. We want to stop running. We want to find the joy of serving with you instead of the frustration of trying to get you to work for us. We want to be constantly expanding our relationships, finding new people that you're doing things with, pushing outside of our group and our borders. But God, there's a lot of Jonah in all of us. So we just ask that you gently and persistently change our hearts And we say yes to whatever you're leading. In your name I pray, amen.